Proctor here with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. The first land up, a meeting on functional programming, will take place on December 6, 2017 at Meat Factory in Prague. They want to create a space for discussion, change the paradigm for the community of programmers, and above all, to open the path for innovation. The event is supported by the organizers of the meetup groups Prague Lambda, F Sharping, and Elm Prague. For more information and to register, visit www.lambda.io. That's L-A-M-B-D-U-P dot I-O. ClosureSync is a new conference by the creator of PurelyFunctional.tv, Eric Normand. Set in New Orleans on February 15th and 16th of 2018, ClosureSync is all about the craft, business, and culture of closure. Go to ClosureSync.com, that's ClosureSync.com, to sign up. Lambda Days 2018 will be taking place February 22nd and 23rd in Krakow, Poland. Tickets opened up as of November 1st and are currently available. For more information and to register, visit www.lambdadays.org. Bob 2018 is in Berlin on February 23rd of 2018. Bob is a developer conference on what's best in software development. Naturally, it has a strong focus on functional programming. For more information and to register, visit bobconf.de. That's B-O-B-K-O-N-F dot D-E. And Bob is immediately followed by Closure D on February 24th, also in Berlin. More information on Closure D can be found at closurede.de. And cross-registration discounts for Bob and Closure D are available. Lambda Squared has been announced. Lambda Squared is a single-day, single-track functional programming conference held in Knoxville, Tennessee on March 30th. Early bird tickets are on sale for $50 until January 7th. For more information and to register, visit www.lambda-squared.com. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show your support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that's how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Eric Norman. Eric, welcome back, and it's been a while, so would you mind giving everybody a little bit of update since the last time we've talked? Yeah, hey Proctor, I'm really glad to be back. Oh, wow. It was a couple years ago, I think, when I was on last. I know we talked a lot about functional programming and my videos, but now I'm working on purelyfunctional.tv. That's where I sell my videos. I'm doing that full time. And currently I'm recording and writing a lot about Reframe. Reframe is a framework in Clojure for the front end that does, you know, it's like a full application framework. And I think it's the currently the most popular ClojureScript front-end framework. I could be wrong about that, but I really like it, and so I'm making a lot of courses about it. 
And shortly before we started this call, I saw you on Twitter and you were just going through about how it was clicking for you and you felt very productive. Yeah. What's different about some of these things that, because you cited a bunch of frameworks you've worked with in the past. What's helping this click? Yeah. Well, yeah, in that Twitter rant, uh, I was talking about, I think that's what they're called, right? I was talking about my history and how I feel like Reframe is a culmination of all the stuff I've been through. You know, I've written server-side rendered apps where every click was a round trip to the server, then started getting into JavaScript, but had no place to put state. So you just cram it right in the DOM and, you know, dig it out later using jQuery and then adding Backbone and like just kind of remembering like, wow, all this stuff, like all this experience that I've got of like hacking these features in a system that wasn't really meant to do it. And then when you get Closure script with immutable data structures, then build that on top of React. And then on top of that, you get reframe. Like everything just kind of falls into place. All the stuff that I've been doing and trying to do and having to do it in a stateful way, a mutable way, you know, storing state in the wrong places, all of that stuff goes away when you have the right way to see it. And Reframe just really matches the way that I wish it would work. And just to go on about Reframe and the ClojureScript ecosystem, I know a lot of people complain about React and and JavaScript, about how it's not going to solve all your problems. And I think that's true. But having done some work in React in pure JavaScript, I also see that all of the problems of JavaScript are still there. Then that's all about the mutability of your state, being able to use confusing effects and the view and, and all sorts of stuff just gets kind of mixed up and creates other problems, new problems. Whereas I feel like in ClojureScript, and the reason I bring up all this React stuff in JavaScript, in ClojureScript, we don't really have that problem We use React for a very specific purpose, which is to make generating the HTML, generating the DOM, give it a functional approach. So we can just write a function that generates virtual DOM nodes and make sure that it updates whenever the state updates. And that's it. And that's a huge problem in the browser in making front-end apps. Your state and your and your view get out of sync, you know, and you have this like two-way thing where you could change the DOM in a way that now it doesn't reflect the state. And so you need to like re-render the whole view and it's a big mess. But in ClojureScript, we're solving that problem like finally, once and for all, and we can move on. I really feel like that's the reason we can get to reframe because we've kind of solved the problem. It's done. Let's move to the next step and solve the next problem. Whereas I see in JavaScript land, there's just a lot of like recapitulation of the same problem. Let's do React. Well, let's kind of rewrite it in Angular. Like Angular is very much the the same idea as React now, the new Angular. And then Vue is like the same ideas, but in a different way. And I don't know, this wasn't meant to be a rant about JavaScript fatigue or anything like that. But 
if you come to ClojureScript, give it a try, you'll see that a lot of those problems go away. And there's a reason that we don't use, I mean, I don't know of anyone using Vue in ClojureScript. It's because React was there first, we chose it, it's stable, it works, we've moved on, solving more interesting problems. Yeah, well, there's my little reframe, ClojureScript, React rant. And we've been doing React using JavaScript, mainly for the native stuff at work, trying to do Mm -hmm. apps across platforms. And having done and played with a bunch of functional programming languages myself, and having talked with all the guests at this point now, it's nice and refreshing what React brings that it kind of helps push you towards. Right. Yeah, you still have all the problems, as you mentioned, of mutability and side effects. And we're thinking about, well, if I have sagas or something, I can at least separate the side effectful stuff from the non-side effectful stuff with some of the React. Right. So I can see where that starts to put us down and appreciate that. Personally, would like to go further to some extent on some of this stuff. But given where React covers, and a lot of people may at least be familiar with React, what does Reframe bring to the table and add to the React mindset? So Reframe has, you build components, they're functions, and they're built in Reagent. So they're just borrowed straight out of Reagent. Reframe gives you a little bit more kind of recommendations for how to use them. But then one of the problems with building an app is when you start building, you don't really know the state you're going to need. You really don't have any idea until you start building it. And also requirements are going to change. So when you think of an app framework, it should handle, it should at least make that easier on you. This app is going to evolve over time. And so one thing that you can do is to relate the parts from each other so that they don't have to all change. If something changes in the view, like you're going to rearrange your UI, you shouldn't have to touch the rest of your app. And if something changes, like you need some new state or you're going to add a caching or something, you shouldn't have to change the UI part. And so what Reframe does is it gives you these boundaries to isolate those parts. And of course, at first, it seems like this is totally unnecessary. Why would I put in a layer between these two parts when it's so much more direct to just change it? So, you know, if you have a button, and you want it to change some state, like just and just an increment button. You want it to add to a thing in the state, add one. In reframe, what you're supposed to do is make an event and fired in the click handler on the button. So you're firing this event, dispatching is what they call it. Reframe will catch the event and handle it. So you have to define an event handler. So already, you've got a dinky thing. I just need to add one to a number and save it somewhere. Why do I have to make an event, name it, then write a handler that's just going to add one to some number somewhere? But it all pays off. Okay, so you got this isolation between the view and the state. The view knows the name of the event, and then the handler knows where to put that state in the database. The database is just a map. You can do whatever you want inside that database. It's just a closure map. Now, when you finally do change it, when the thing gets handled, you need to re-render your UI. You need a way to react to that change in the state. So you make a subscription. A subscription is, again, it's a thing with a name. 
and you have to write a function that says how to calculate the value that that subscription gives you from the database. So if you store the count under the count key in the database, so just a number at the count key, then you would have a subscription that just takes the thing out of the count key, just gets out of the map the count key. And every time that number changes, the subscription is going to fire, and your component, which is using that subscription, which is derefing the subscription, is going to re-render. And of course, for a little number, it looks like this isn't worth it, but that's going to evolve over time. So notice, if I wanted to move that counter in the database, so I want to do a restructuring of my database, it's getting messy, I want to reorganize it, and I want to change it from count, the count key, to some really deeply nested thing, like four keys down, now I have that number. I don't have to touch my view. I don't have to touch my components at all because the component is just saying increment the count. And then the subscription, that's an event, and then the subscription is called count. It doesn't matter where it is. All I have to do is change the handler for the event because now it has to know where the thing is. And I have to change the function that calculates the value for that subscription. So I just changed those two things and my database is now the way I want it again without having to change my UI code at all. So that's the big benefit, right? Is it separates those two things out enough and gives you... So what I like to say is that your events and your subscriptions are actually going to become the bedrock because your UI is going to change. You're going to need to move buttons around, add new buttons, change the layout. That's going to happen over the lifetime of your app. And your database is constantly changing because you're adding new stuff in there. You're saying, oh, we need to index this better. You know, we can't iterate through vectors anymore. We need to put it in a map. And so you're just constantly churning that. But what stays the same is I want to increment whatever you name the event. Let's call it increment count. And then whatever you call the subscription, which is called count. And that's going to stay the same. And it's easy to name those because you're actually capturing the intent, right? You're saying this, whatever the UI element it is, it could be a button, it could be a swipe, it could be whatever. It's always going to increment the count. And so you just name it based on the intent that the user has. So, you know, in an e-commerce app, that intent could be add to cart, right? Add the item to the cart. You don't say click buy button, right? Because it might not be a button next week, right? You might, or on mobile, it's not a button anymore. It's something else. So you name it based on the user's intent. It sounds a lot like Redux and the Elm architecture from what you're describing. For sure. Which is also funny because it also sounds very object-oriented because now you're doing the message passing in the truest sense. Message passing, right. Not the, I'm going to call a method on an object, but I'm going to publish a message, the add to cart right. or increment counter something somewhere via either publish, subscribe, or some other mechanism is going to listen to that thing and act on it right. accordingly. So it sounds like, again, back to some of those ideas of this is kind of that the implementation of the pure ideas from both functional programming and the pure object-oriented where you've got that boundary 
and you pass the message. And I don't care how this happens. I just know I need to add this to cart. And I know can get a message that says what's in my cart. Right, exactly. And it's it's funny you mentioned that, you know, the Elm architecture and Redux and probably others are all kind of converging on the same thing. To me, that gives me a lot of confidence that we're we're all on to something. We definitely are inspiring each other. You know, it's all done in public and open source projects. Like we see each other working and we take good ideas where we see them. And But I also think that it's confirmation that we're the people working on these individual projects, separate projects, but co-inspiring each other. They're all very smart people. They're coming out at these things and judging them themselves, whether they are good ideas. And they're all saying yes. So to me, that's good. It's um, message passing thing is definitely object oriented. I think the difference where I would disagree making a point to point message passing. So you're not saying this object can, can send a message to any object it has a reference to. What you're doing is taking this message and putting it on a queue. And just like with Redux and with the Elm architecture, there's this idea that we're centralizing the state. We're going to have one place to put this mutable state because it's so hard to manage. We just And we need it, though. So we're just going to put one thing that's mutable, one big thing, and manage it. But... That's the thing. We're also managing each individual piece, each individual message. You have a thing that is easier to manage and reason about and, and evolve over time. So the two things with the message passing that sound from what I've done with the Redux side is where it's nice is it is a pu- more of the publish subscribe, which means anybody can act on that event. So if you need to have another so-called listener or someone that's subscriber, you can hook that in too, and you can keep those things isolated and decoupled. And then leaning a little bit towards the object-oriented side is you have the one global mutable state, but you have the smaller parts that you kind of chop up and say, okay, well, only this thing's going to be responsible for messing with that counter. So it's still mutable. All your mutable is in one place, but you've got this small focused responsibility of where that mutability happens. So if it's the counter, it happens here. If it's the shopping cart, it happens here. So it seems nice in that sense where if you're going to deal with these mutabilities and acting on these messages, you know where that responsibility lies. Right, exactly. To me, it just feels like if you just went back to first principles and you applied functional programming principles, like, okay, we need state, so let's manage that centrally, and we have effects, so how are we going to deal with those? And we have this view that has to update based on the date. Like you just pull it all apart and, you know, figure out the dependency graph and like, well, that's it. It's done. And like, this is what we needed all along. It just feels really nice. And as you said, it's a lot of the back down to finding some of those common principles. And everybody's kind of agreeing with these ideas. I think it was Pablo Picasso said, good artists borrow, great artists steal. And the fact that all these people are stealing these so-called new ideas from each other and doing it, but also being able to look and say, okay, well, some of this does reminiscent of small talks message passing or Erling's message passing or some of these older systems that you also cite in your newsletters occasionally, but where we're also pulling back some of these things that say these are working for us now and we can see hints that they worked in the past. 
Right. And I mean, it's all just good ideas, you know? I don't know what else to say about it. I do know that when I, I have done a Redux app and I saw the ideas. And so, you know, as a functional programmer, they're, it's nice. It's like, oh, this is a good implementation of this idea. Let me use it. The trouble I had was the other developers were not functional programmers and it didn't click with them so quickly. And there was just a lot of, I guess it was hard to convince people of, yes, this boilerplate is beneficial. Like it is okay, you know, define this action instead of just calling the thing directly in the callback, send off an action and and have a handler that handles the action and you have to put it into your reducer. Like it was an uphill battle convincing people and, and honestly teaching them how to do it as well. And I'm sure that that's the case in Reframe. Why do we do it this way or that way? When when I look at it and I'm like, wow, this is this is it. This is what I wanted all along. It's probably not so clear to other people. And you mentioned bringing the team up that weren't functional programmers. With your background that we've touched on with teaching and your videos, you said you it was a little bit of an uphill battle. But did you find that once they got to a certain point, they really started to appreciate these ideas? Or did they never get there? Or were there still other ways of thinking? What was that eventual result like? Yeah, they did eventually appreciate it. That they could tell that, for one thing, that things were organized. That when they, sure, it's okay to do a little thing in a callback and, you know, maybe it modifies some state or something, but it's just one little thing. And but then after you have 10 or 20 of those, you can't remember what's going on anymore. And then they started to say, oh, I see, this is, this is just a mess. Like, you know, luckily they were kind of organized people. And so they wanted, they wanted to have something, some system for where to put everything. And, you know, Redux, Redux had that for them. So I think it, it worked out. Now, I think that there's another issue, which is, I don't want to say anything bad about Redux, but I think it has too much boilerplate. Because so much of developing an app is experimentation. And people are talking about iterative development, but it's not really that. It's that you try something and you realize it's wrong. But it took a lot of code to get there. And the boilerplate is right the first time, which means you're not going to move. It's actually slower to get it right the first time than it is to get it wrong three times and then get it right. So I think that. Like when I look at it, I'm like, why don't you just wrap this up, right? <laughs> wrap it up in something easy, uh, like a one function thing instead of like building out a whole bunch of stuff. So yeah, I think that that adds to that reluctance to use it, that it's got too much boilerplate and you don't get that fast feedback that you can with, with a well-organized system. So we touched on your purely functional newsletter. And we've covered that in the past. You've still been going yeah, with that. Every week. And you still pull in things from different languages occasionally for inspiration. As we talked about stealing good ideas, whatever language they are, or getting inspiration from those good ideas to find out how it works in Clojure or just whatever you're going to be working on if you're not in Clojure and you're still following your newsletter. And you also kind of dig back into the past and the community. And where I'm going with this is... Along those lines, you've now 
put together Closure Sync, which I've been helping to announce. So I'm sure the audience has at least heard of it. But you've now kind of taken the newsletter and seems like you're trying to put a purely functional TV newsletter as a conference. Is that an appropriate feel for anybody who's read your newsletters? Yeah, that's a really good insight. Because I don't know if I've ever really just come out and said it. And I don't know if I really understand it that well myself. But yeah, I'm when I do the newsletter, my basic idea is that the closure community really likes good ideas. They like a variety of ideas from wherever they come from and that we're kind of philosophical about our programs, that we're practical as well. So, you know, we're looking to the future, but also we want it to run now. And we look in computer science throughout history, but also we look outside to, you know, trends in history, philosophy, art, science, the humanities, all the fields. And I think that's most evident in Rich Hickey's talks, that he does manage to draw threads from all those different fields. But I also try to do it in my newsletters. And so my idea with the conference was to base it on some themes, some broad themes. And the themes should be like practical now, but also make you like a better person in general. So the themes are the craft of code. And I don't think in in the closure world we talk enough about the craft. I know, for instance, I've watched quite a few Ruby talks that are all about style and you know, how big should your methods be and how do you refactor and stuff like that. We don't talk that much about that at the conferences. Maybe the organizing committee is not that interested in them. But I just don't see that talked about too much. But this theme is all about writing the code, building abstractions, architecting your system, that kind of thing. And we've got three great speakers about that. We've got Zach Tellman, who's writing a book on closure code style called The Elements of Closure. We've got George Kirstein, who is going to talk about an issue that is really important in programming, which is like we write programs, but as soon as we stop running them, they start to bit rot. And you park some code on GitHub, and six months later, you try to run it on your system, and it doesn't work anymore. And it's like your dependencies have changed, the OS is upgraded. Things are just broken. And that's a real danger, I feel like. We invest all this time and energy into the code, and then it doesn't work in months. It's not even that long, right? So she's going to be talking about how to help prevent that. She doesn't have a like perfect solution that will make it work all the time, but that she's going to you know, elaborate the issue and talk about that a little more. And she has a paper on recommendations and and a process for improving survivability of code. So then we have Emily Ashley. She's native to New Orleans. She's going to be talking about time and place. And this is such a great topic because time and place, you know, we think, oh, we need to just put a timestamp, right? Timestamp TZ, the Postgres data type, and we're done except it's not that simple because 
as soon as that abstraction meets the human concept of time, it doesn't work anymore because it's like down to the millisecond. Like no one thinks that precisely about time. And sometimes you just want to say, uh, this thing happened in 1984. I just want to say 1984. And so she works on dates and times and places at her work and in her side projects. So this is right up her alley and a really great talk. Okay, so that's the craft, right? How do we build these abstractions? How do we code? There's a career track. It's all single track. I say track. It's a theme. And this one is sort of about like, okay, we have to make money. People have to build businesses on this thing. What do we need to know? So we have Rebecca Kinsella. She works at Funding Circle. They're a big closure shop in San Francisco. And it's all about hiring closure. She hired as a closure developer. Should be really interesting. Then we have Ilana Hashman. She is working on getting the line again package. You know, we need to realize how dependent we are as a programming community on all of the ecosystems that already exist and work it takes to make sure that you can type up one line and get line again installed on your system you know a working line again um, we have by champion goes i'm sure i'm re- pronouncing his name wrong also known as bg because i'm sure a lot of people get it wrong and he's built a company on closure help shift so he's going to be talking about that. He actually had the first closure code in production. So this is a long time ago, maybe nine years ago. All right, that's the career theme. The final theme, which is the one I'm like super excited about, is context. Because we're programmers, we live in the world, we're a speck in the history of humanity. How does this fit in? This whole programming thing is like exploding. We invent the computer and then like now so many people are employed typing into these things all the time and making them do things. Like what is going on? We just want some context for how we fit into the stuff. So we have Gerald Sussman. Dr. Sussman is one of the co-authors of Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programming. He's a professor at MIT. And he's going to be talking about the effect of programming on humanity. Now, I I don't know all the details because we talked about what topic he would talk about. And he was like, oh, that's giving me so many ideas. Okay, I'm going to go and write them down now. I don't know exactly what he is going to say. But he's an awesome speaker. He's He's spoken at Strange Loop. He gives lots of lectures at MIT. And just a great guy. Okay, Will Bird. He's the guy who invented or wrote Mini Conren. That's the logic engine in Scheme, which CoreLogic was based on. And he's, I talked to him at one of the closure conferences, and I asked him, like, what are you interested in right now? And he said that he was really into the history of writing because Alan Kay talked about how important writing was as a technology, as an invention. And so he started reading all these books And so when I came up with this idea for the context theme, I was like, he's going to talk about the history of writing and what it teaches us about software. So he's a programmer. He's a computer science professor. He is going to relate the evolution of writing and how it's changed history and relate it to software. 
David Nolan is going to talk about the future of programming. But again, it's one of those, I just trust him as a speaker. I don't know exactly what he's going to talk about. And then the final speaker is Kim Creighton. She is going to be talking about AI and what's going to happen in the future where AI is going to start eating jobs and how we can prepare for it now, how we can compete with AI is getting better and better. And we're building the AIs now that are going to take our jobs. So what do we do? So anyway, those are the the speakers. And I'm super excited about this conference. It's in New Orleans. It's in February. You can buy tickets, closuresync.com. Actually, I'm going to give your audience a discount. So a 10% discount if you put in the code geekery when you uh, check out for your tickets. 10% off. So how did the idea of this conference come about? You mentioned you started having this idea, but what took it from wanting to see this and thinking some things were missing to going in and deciding to put the conference together and actually putting on the conference and making that leap? Yeah, that's a, wow, really difficult question because I've I've been going to conferences for a few years now. And every time I kind of had this idea like, oh, this would be awesome to have mine, my own. And I would talk to people and it's it's not that common, I don't think. I just like the idea of hosting people and giving them a good time and helping them feel welcome and all that. And also sweating all the little details, you know, like, oh, is it going to be single track or multi-track? And are we going to serve lunch? And what would it be? And like all that stuff. And but then whenever I talked to someone who had organized a conference, they were like, oh, it's kind of a lot of work. And I knew I didn't have time to do it. So I just always put it off thinking one day I might do that. And then the team at Cognitect announced that they are going to be merging Closure West with the Conj. And so what that meant was that they were opening up the calendar at the beginning of the year because the Conj was in um, October, November, but the Closure West was always sort of the other end of the year. So it was February, March. And opening up the calendar meant, okay, I'm not going to be competing with Closure West. So now's the chance. I better take that spot on the calendar before anybody else does. So that kind of lit a fire under me. I looked at a whole bunch of venues, had someone helping me with that. And so I had all these venues. I had like, just to help the other person figure out what I was looking for, we made like a list. What has to have this and that and that. And we found a bunch of venues that checked most of the boxes. But then we found one that checked all of the other boxes, not all of the boxes, but all of the other boxes that the other ones weren't checking. For instance, it's in the French Quarter and it's a good price and it's small but nice. And it just having all these little things checked, it's like, I have to see this one because the other ones are kind of all the same, but they don't check all the boxes they would be fine but you know let me see this one so we went to see it and we just fell in love like the location the building the people very nice and 
it was just perfect. It's a little theater. It's about a hundred years old now. It's built right in the French Quarter. Like like you couldn't be more central. It's right by the cathedral and the square in front of the cathedral, Jackson Square. And so as soon as I could, I was like, okay, I'm gonna put a deposit down. And of course, that took longer than I wanted. I was like, I have a check. And they were like, well, <laughs> we need a contract and like, you know, we need to get this your event approved and stuff. And I was like, uh, but I want to grab that spot on the calendar. But anyway, it worked out, put the deposit down, announced the conference, then started putting it together. Once you have a date set, you can start inviting people and selling tickets and stuff like that. And you reached out to me earlier on just to let me know that you were starting to think about it getting close and then some of the details. So I've been following the progress for a while and you've been announcing it in your newsletter and updates with it as well. But on the topic of hosting and enjoying people and making sure that they're going to have a good time, you even put together a food guide at New Orleans. Right, right. So one of the, one of the things that that the French Quarter, that this location did not check off, was that it's not so easy food-wise. Let me explain, because there's plenty of good food. We were looking at other places that are more like central business district. There's a lot of office buildings. There's a lot of hotels around. And when people get off for lunch, they want to go to a restaurant. There's plenty of options. And they're typically all really great options. And you can tell which ones are good just by like, oh, that's the kind of place I want to eat in. The French Quarter, though, it doesn't have all the offices. So you don't have this like giant exodus from office buildings. So it can't just like absorb 200 people all at once, come like leaving one door, right? So that was one of the challenges. The other one is the French Quarter has a mix of quality because a lot of the restaurants are just tourist traps. I mean, just to, to be honest, they're, it's even hard to tell which ones are which. Locals seem to know. And so what I didn't want was for someone to come to New Orleans and wind up at a tourist trap thinking, eh, the food's all right. Because New Orleans has great food. So you know, that would be a real shame. And then even worse would be, oh, my lunch was okay. And then the person that's sitting next to them in the theater is like, oh, my lunch was amazing because they went to the other place. And so I didn't want someone to turn left, have a bad experience, and another person turn right, have a good experience. So I wanted to fix that. And so I contacted the Southern Food and Beverage Museum that is in here in town in New Orleans, and I asked them to put together a restaurant recommendation list. And they did, and it's a great list. It's mostly centered around the French Quarter because that's where the conference is, but it's also stuff around town that you would want to go to. And that worked so well. Oh, and then the, the hotel issue, there aren't a lot of big hotels in the quarter. The bigger hotels are kind of on the outskirts of the quarter. And they're, you know, like your Marriott's and your Hilton's. They're the bigger chain hotels. And I wanted something closer to the venue and a little bit more of a, of a quarter feel. And so I also got in touch with 
a group of hotels called the New Orleans Hotel Collection. And they don't have a big hotel, but they have several smaller hotels. So we're actually putting together a group rate from four different hotels. And so they're different styles. They're in different parts of the quarter. You can kind of pick and choose what you want. And this was working so well, this whole like, well, it doesn't have everything I want, but I could put it together as little pieces like the guide and the hotels. Like I could just build the conference up that way. And so I was looking at venues for a party and unfortunately they were all way too expensive. The venue itself wasn't expensive. It was always like, well, then we require you to have $7,000 worth of food. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's, that's a significant amount of the money that I'm going to get from the tickets. I don't think I can afford that. And so anyway, I said, well, maybe I can put something together in the same way. And so what we're doing is we're getting volunteers, local volunteers, to organize some kind of social event. So instead of a party in a big room, everyone's in the room, some people don't like parties, some people who know each other are just going to hang out with each other, that kind of thing, like just awkward cocktail party thing. I think it'd be really awesome to have smaller groups like these 10 people want to go see a jazz show. Then these 10 people just want to do a, a bar crawl. Like that's their thing. These people want to go take a walking tour and just have it so that you can have a much more intimate time with people who share interests with you and just be together. And so I'm putting it together piecemeal, but it's actually turning out to be a positive thing. It's not like you're losing something, you're gaining something by having these different experiences. And we've kind of run the gamut of what you've been up to between the conference, some of your videos, your newsletter. What haven't we covered? Is there anything that's been going on that we haven't covered or that you want to at least raise awareness about? Touching on the fact that Closure West and the Closure Conch has now been combined was news to me. I missed that announcement. But is there anything either in your world or just the larger community of closure that you think we should at least mention or bring up? Um, yeah, yeah, that's, I would like to bring up something. So there's been some talk online about the closure community and whether they're, uh, how do I put this? Whether it's in decline or whether it's not friendly to beginners and it's, that's what's going to be its downfall, like that kind of thing. And that kind of worried me. You know, because from my perspective, I, I don't see that happening. I don't see it in decline. And so I kind of join into that discussion, trying to understand people's perspectives. But then when I was at the cons in October, I was just so taken aback. Just how you see people online they're talking, they're complaining, they have issues and they want to air them. So the posts and the tone of the comments and everything, it's just very negative. But when you're in a room with people and they're together and discussing it, the same people who seem so negative online just seemed like, no, they're just trying to build a, a good community. And it really made me realize that the closure community is stronger than ever. And the, all the stuff that was happening online 
all the blog posts and people kind of like rage quitting the community because it didn't satisfy some need they had. That these are just part of a community starting to become aware of itself. Becoming like, oh, what are our problems? What could we work on? What are our strengths? And, you know, one of the things is people don't really complain about strengths that much. So you don't see all that stuff. But when I was there at the Conj, people love closure. They want to invest themselves in it. They love the community. They want to make it better. And I just felt like this is, it's, there's never been a better time to be part of the closure community. And you mentioned the dichotomy there between what you saw in person and what you've seen online. How do we help balance that dichotomy? Is there anything you've seen that says, here's how we balance that dichotomy? So if all they see is online and they don't get to attend these conferences, how do we not scare people away from this community? Is there something that you've seen that works well? Or is that still one of these problems that we as the larger programming community and possibly everybody on the internet still needs to figure out. Yeah, I think there's a little of the second. I mean, I don't have any answers. The issue, it's an issue for any community. You know, if you go into Slack and everybody's really nice, like that doesn't ever leave the Slack channel. Like no one's like writing a four-page blog post about how nice they were treated in the Slack, you know. You might see that in the comments uh, or, you know, the Twitter feed about the topic. Like, oh, no, but people are really nice. You know, you might see it as a comment, but it's on a 10-page blog post that got to the top of Hacker News. And that's what everyone's going to see. They're going to see the the negativity. I don't know. I, I just I just feel like that that we're learning also as a as a culture what kind of stuff does make it online that it's so much easier for a, a negative post to get onto the top of Hacker News, even if it could be counteracted by another positive post, it just wouldn't be so popular. We just have to learn that, like, yeah, you, you're going to hear complaining, and that's just a sign of a healthy community. Let me put it another way. In my 20s, I was in a group of people, I mean, a group of friends, and we were all really concerned about gossip, you know, like people talking about each other behind their backs. And I then read an article about gossip and how gossip is really important for a social group. That it helps the people in the group understand like where the group stands on things, sort of like the ethics and the morality you know, like, oh, he slept with her. Is that okay? You know, that kind of thing. And you, you kind of make an inroad, like, was that okay? And then they're like, no, I don't think that was okay. Oh, okay, okay. So that's like, that's the gossip. And also, the gossip is always about the more significant people in the group. They're more prominent. They're more talked about. Their actions are more like, people analyze them more, like every little thing they do. And so what it means is, if you're hearing more and more negative stuff, it doesn't mean that thing is like terrible and more and more negative. It's just picked apart more and more. And what it really means is that that thing is significant. The thing itself, the subject of the gossip, of the online chatter, that is the thing that's important. 
And so when you see people talking about closure in a negative way, it means more people are using closure. It means that they want closure to be better. And I think we need to come to grips with that as, as a culture, that, that when things are being picked apart, it actually is a positive thing, that it means people care, it means people are paying attention, it means the thing is being used, it means that we're shining lights on things, parts of it. And so we just need to appreciate a little more that the negative stuff is the stuff that spreads and the positive stuff, uh, we just take it for granted. And so we're coming up on time. We covered a lot. You just gave some great food for thought about online communities, <laughs> community building, trying the balance of being welcoming, but also knowing that a community is present. Cause I guess if nobody's actually talking about it, nobody's probably in that community. So having some noise about something means something's happening. But is there any other things or upcoming projects or things that are on your radar in the future that you want to let people know about just more specific to you? I know you're going to be probably occupied through middle of February with ClosureSync and you've got your videos and newsletter, but anything else people should be keeping an eye open? Maybe new videos, maybe something else? Well, like I said, I'm working on Reframe right now. That is going to be a big course. It's already, I'm sure it's over four hours. It might be five hours already. I'm recording every day, so I, I don't really keep that close track. And this is going to be like a comprehensive tour of like everything about Reframe, including the React lifecycle, all the way through best practices and little patterns that you do in your UI and how to implement them in Reframe. That, I don't know when that's going to be over because I just keep finding new stuff to talk about in there. I'm going to have to cut it off at some point, right? But for right now, it's going to be really big. But then that's not the end of Reframe. There's like more to do. Like I want to build an app and record it and show people all that. I'm giving a talk, I think, like the day after this comes out. It's December 6th is my talk. It's at Up. That's in the Czech Republic in Prague. That's going to be awesome. It's a one-day meeting, conference thing, workshops in the morning, talks in the afternoon. I'm sure a lot of beer because it's like a very beer-oriented country. <laughs> so that'll be fun. Let's see, what else? And I'm just occupied right now. I'm really busy and it feels good to be... I feel like I'm being very prolific right now writing every day, recording every day, selling tickets and to Closure Sync, selling subscriptions. A thing about my videos that might be interesting to people, especially international people, is I just pushed a feature to my site where certain countries that have, let's say, their economies are not as strong. I'm giving sometimes very significant discounts on memberships and individual courses. So if you go to the site, there's going to be a banner up at the top. If you're in one of those countries, when you access the site, it'll detect your country. It'll show you the banner and your coupon code and tell you how much you're going to get. Because I do appreciate that. So like right now, my membership is $49 a month. And I do appreciate that $49 a month is a lot of money in some places. And I don't think of it as charity. I think of it as just meeting people where they are. It's probably still 
a luxury to be able to afford even, you know, $5 a month on something like learning how to program closure better. But it's an investment. You know, it's something that you can improve your career with. So it's something that should pay off in the future. So that's, yeah, that's another big thing I, I pushed. So is that the kind of thing you're thinking about? That sounds good. And I was just wanting to make sure we covered and plugged any updates that you had that we didn't manage to get a chance to cover and let people know about. So if you're listing somewhere else, you might have the ability to get that discount if you're at that currency that may not have that great exchange rate with the U.S. Then. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm trying to think of anything else. I'm sure there's stuff in the pipeline, but not really to talk about it yet. Well, we can always get you back on in the future. <laughs> yeah, and people can always jump on the newsletter. It's still going strong. I started it back in 2012. It's weekly. It's got a mix of stuff I find on the web, stuff that I'm working on. And it's it's not always all about closure. There's other stuff, other computer science topics, other things that just are capturing my interest at the time, but stuff that closure programmers would appreciate. So jump on. And we'll get links to all these resources that we talked about, other resources, things like the newsletter and your purely functional TV site, everything else, closure sync and the like, so that people can come back, track it down. We'll get your Twitter, GitHub, all the other links we've had for you in the past and get those awesome. in the show notes as well. So people don't need to go find the old episodes of you just to track down where to find you. We'll get those episodes so they can listen to you, but that way they don't have to jump through show notes and show notes to find a resource for it. Awesome. You know, Proctor, I should thank you because you are a great resource for the whole community. And it's nice that you're you know, putting the hard work in to go around documenting what people are working on and what they find interesting and talking to interesting people. And it's really great to to hear the podcast. And I'm always excited when there's a new episode that comes to my, my phone. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. And your newsletter was one of those things that kind of made me interested in reaching across the different boundaries when you pull in some of these topics from different aspects of the communities and the large early exposure to closure where a lot of the closure community in the early days would reach across domains or across the computer science history to pull the ideas and find where those are. So thank you for your part of it as well. Yeah, you're welcome. I, I enjoy it. And it's been a cool adventure. I'd like to thank David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Eric, for joining me today. It's been a pleasure talking with you, as always. And I'm sure we'll get you back on in the future, either if I notice you coming up with something new or you I have one of those projects you're working on but aren't ready to start talking about in the future. Feel free to reach back out. But it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Awesome. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.